You are listening to a very special episode of On Purpose. Today, you're getting exclusive access to the audiobook introduction of my brand new book, Think Like a Monk. Now, I am so excited to share this with you because the book, Because of You, has been made a number one international bestseller in its first week. We've been top of the charts in India, the US, the UK, Australia, Canada, thanks to each and every one of you that have already got a copy of the book. Now, if you're now feeling like you're missing out because you don't have it yet, you can go over to thinklikeamonkbook.com and order it right now. And if you've already been reading it or read the book, please, please, please go and leave a review because I can't wait to see what you think about it. Can't wait to see you and read your reviews. And I'll be sharing a few of them on the podcast as well. So go ahead, listen to the introduction of the audiobook. I hope you enjoy this. If you want a new idea, read an old book attributed to Ivan Pavlov, among others. When I was 18 years old, in my first year of college at Cass Business School in London, one of my friends asked me to go with him to hear a monk give a talk. I resisted. Why would I want to go hear some monk? I often went to see CEOs, celebrities, and other successful people lecture on campus, but I had zero interest in a monk. I preferred to hear speakers who'd actually accomplished things in life. My friend persisted, and I finally said, as long as we go to a bar afterwards, I'm in. Falling in love is an expression used almost exclusively to describe romantic relationships. But that night, as I listened to the monk talk about his experience, I fell in love. The figure on stage was a 30-something Indian man. His head was shaved and he wore a saffron robe. He was intelligent, eloquent, and charismatic. He spoke about the principle of selfless sacrifice. When he said that we should plant trees under whose shade we do not plan to sit, I felt an unfamiliar thrill run through my body. I was especially impressed when I found out that he'd been a student at IIT Bombay, which is the MIT of India, and like MIT, nearly impossible to get into. He traded that opportunity to become a monk, walking away from everything that my friends and I were chasing. Either he was crazy or he was onto something. My whole life, I'd been fascinated by people who'd gone from nothing to something, rags to riches stories. Now, for the first time, I was in the presence of someone who'd deliberately done the opposite. He'd given up the life the world had told me we should all want. But instead of being an embittered failure, he appeared joyous, confident, and at peace. In fact, he seemed happier than anyone I'd ever met. At the age of 18, I'd encountered a lot of people who were rich. I'd listened to a lot of people who were famous, strong, good-looking, or all three. But I don't think I'd met anyone who was truly happy. Afterward, I pushed my way through the crowds to tell him how amazing he was and how much he'd inspired me. How can I spend more time with you? I heard myself asking. I felt the urge to be around people who had the values I wanted, not the things I wanted. The monk told me that he was traveling and speaking in the UK all that week and I was welcome to come to the rest of his events. And so I did. 
My first impression of the monk, whose name was Gorangadas, was that he was doing something right. And later, I would discover that science backs that up. In 2002, a Tibetan monk named Yonge Mingyo Rinpoche traveled from an area just outside Kathmandu, Nepal, to the University of Wisconsin-Madison so that researchers could watch his brain activity while he meditated. The scientist covered the monk's head with a shower cap-like device, an EEG, that had more than 250 tiny wires sticking out of it, each with a sensor that a lab tech attached to his scalp. At the time of the study, the monk had accumulated 62,000 hours of lifetime meditation practice. As a team of scientists, some of them seasoned meditators themselves, watched from a control room, the monk began the meditation protocol the researchers had designed, alternating between one minute of meditating on compassion and a 30-second rest period. He quickly cycled through this pattern four times in a row, cued by a translator. The researchers watched in awe. At almost the exact moment the monk began his meditation, the EEG registered a sudden and massive spike in activity. The scientists assumed that with such a large, quick bump, the monk must have changed positions or otherwise moved. Yet to the observing eye, he remained perfectly still. What was remarkable was not just the consistency of the monk's brain activity, turning off and on repeatedly from activity to rest period, but also the fact that he needed no warm-up period. If you're a meditator or have at least tried to calm your brain, you know that typically it takes some time to quiet the parade of distracting thoughts that marches through your mind. Rinpoche seemed to need no such transition period. Indeed, he seemed to be able to come in and out of a powerful meditative state as easily as flipping a switch. More than 10 years after these initial studies, scans of the 41-year-old monk's brain showed fewer signs of aging than his peers. The researchers said he had the brain of someone 10 years younger. Researchers who scanned Buddhist monk Matthew Ricard's brain subsequently labeled him the world's happiest man after they found the highest level of gamma waves, those associated with attention, memory, learning, and happiness, ever recorded by science. One monk who's off the charts may seem like an anomaly, but Ricard isn't alone. 21 other monks who had their brains scanned during a variety of meditation practices also showed gamma wave levels that spiked higher and lasted longer, even during sleep, than non-meditators. Why should we think like monks? If you wanted to know how to dominate the basketball court, you might turn to Michael Jordan. If you wanted to innovate, you might investigate Elon Musk. You might study Beyonce to learn how to perform. If you want to train your mind to find peace, calm, and purpose, monks are the experts. Brother David Steindl-Rast, a Benedictine monk who co-founded Gratefulness.org, writes, A layperson who is consciously aiming to be continuously alive in the now is a monk. Monks can withstand temptations, refrain from criticizing, deal with pain and anxiety, quiet the ego, and build lives that brim with purpose and meaning. Why shouldn't we learn from the calmest, happiest, most purposeful people on earth? 
Maybe you're thinking it's easy for monks to be calm, serene, and relaxed. They're hidden away in tranquil settings where they don't have to deal with jobs and romantic partners and, well, rush hour traffic. Maybe you're wondering, how could thinking like a monk help me here in the modern world? First of all, monks weren't born monks. They're people from all sorts of backgrounds who've chosen to transform themselves. Matthew Rickard, the world's happiest man, was a biologist in his former life. Andy Puddicombe, co-founder of the meditation app Headspace, trained to be in the circus. I know monks who are in finance and in rock bands. They grew up in schools, towns, and cities just like you. You don't need to light candles in your home, walk around barefoot, or post photos of yourself doing tree pose on a mountaintop. Becoming a monk is a mindset that anyone can adopt. Like most monks today, I didn't grow up in an ashram. I spent most of my childhood doing unmonk-like things. Until the age of 14, I was an obedient kid. I grew up in North London with my parents and my younger sister. I'm from a middle-class Indian family. Like a lot of parents, mine were committed to my education and to giving me a shot at a good future. I stayed out of trouble, did well in school, and tried my best to make everybody happy. But when I started secondary school, I took a left turn. I'd been heavy as a child and bullied for it. But now I lost that weight and began playing soccer and rugby. I turned to subjects that traditional Indian parents don't generally favor, like art, design, and philosophy. All this would have been fine, but I also started mixing with the wrong crowd. I became involved in a bunch of bad stuff. Experimenting with drugs, fighting, drinking too much. It did not go well. In high school, I was suspended three times. Finally, the school asked me to leave. I'll change, I promised. If you let me stay, I'll change. The school let me stay, and I cleaned up my act. Finally, in college, I started to notice the value of hard work, sacrifice, discipline, persistence in pursuit of one's goals. The problem was that at the time, I didn't have any goals apart from getting a good job, getting married one day, maybe having a family, the usual. I suspected there was something deeper, but I didn't know what it was. By the time Gorangadas came to speak at my school, I was primed to explore new ideas, a new model of living, a path that veered from the one everyone, including myself, assumed I would take. I wanted to grow as a person. I didn't want to know humility or compassion and empathy only as abstract concepts. I wanted to live them. I didn't want discipline, character and integrity to just be things I read about. I wanted to live them. For the next four years, I juggled two worlds, going from bars and steakhouses to meditation and sleeping on the floor. In London, I studied management with an emphasis on behavioral science and interned at a large consulting firm and spent time with my friends and family. And at an ashram in Mumbai, I read and studied ancient texts, spending most of my Christmas and summer holidays living with monks. My values gradually shifted. I found myself wanting to be around monks. In fact, I wanted to immerse myself in the monk mindset. More and more, the work I was doing in the corporate world seemed to lack meaning. What was the point if it had no positive impact on anyone? When I graduated from college, I traded my suits for robes and joined the ashram, where we slept on the floor and lived out of gym lockers. 
I lived and traveled across India, the UK, and Europe. I meditated for hours every day and studied ancient scriptures. I had the opportunity to serve with my fellow monks, helping with the ongoing work of transforming an ashram in a village outside Mumbai into an eco-friendly spiritual retreat, the Govardhan Eco Village, and volunteering with a food program that distributes over a million meals a day, Anamrita. If I can learn to think like a monk, anyone can. The Hindu monks I studied with use the Vedas as their foundational text. The title is from the Sanskrit word Veda, meaning knowledge. Sanskrit is an ancient language that's the precursor of most of the languages spoken in South Asia today. You could argue that philosophy began with this ancient collection of scriptures, which originated in the area that now covers parts of Pakistan and northwest India at least 3,000 years ago. They formed the basis of Hinduism. Like Homer's epic poems, the Vedas were first transmitted orally, then eventually written down. But because of the fragility of the materials, palm leaves and birch bark, most of the surviving documents we have are at most a few hundred years old. The Vedas include hymns, historical stories, poems, prayers, chants, ceremonial rituals, and advice for daily life. In my life and in this book, I frequently refer to the Bhagavad Gita, which means Song of God. This is loosely based on the Upanishads, writings from around 800 to 400 BCE. The Bhagavad Gita is considered a kind of universal and timeless life manual. The tale isn't told about a monk or meant for a spiritual context. It's spoken to a married man who happens to be a talented archer. It wasn't intended to apply only to one religion or region. It's for all humanity. Eknath Ishwaran, spiritual author and professor who has translated many of India's sacred texts, including the Bhagavad Gita, calls it India's most important gift to the world. In his 1845 journal, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, I owed, my friend and I owed, a magnificent day to the Bhagavad Gita. It was the first of books. It was as if an empire spoke to us. Nothing small or unworthy, but large, serene, consistent. The voice of an old intelligence, which in an other age and climate had pondered and thus disposed of the same questions which exercise us. It's said that there have been more commentaries written about the Gita than any other scripture. In this book, one of my goals is to help you connect with its timeless wisdom, along other ancient teachings that were the basis of my education as a monk and that have significant relevance to the challenges we all face today. What struck me most when I studied monk philosophy is that in the last 3,000 years, humans haven't really changed. Sure, we're taller and on average we live longer, but I was surprised and impressed to find that the monk teachings talk about forgiveness, energy, intentions, living with purpose, and other topics in ways that are as resonant today as they must have been when they were written. Even more impressively, monk wisdom can largely be supported by science, as we'll see throughout this book. For millennia, monks have believed that meditation and mindfulness are beneficial, that gratitude is good for you, that service makes you happier and more that you will learn in this book. They developed practices around these ideas 
long before modern science could show or validate them. Albert Einstein said, if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it well enough. When I saw how relevant the lessons I was learning were to the modern world, I wanted to dive deeper into them so that I could share them with other people. Three years after I moved to Mumbai, my teacher Gaurangadas told me he believed I would be of greater value and service if I left the ashram and shared what I'd learned with the world. My three years as a monk were like a school of life. It was hard to become a monk and even harder to leave. But applying the wisdom to life outside the ashram, the hardest part, felt like the final exam. Every day I'm finding that the monk mindset These days, I still consider myself a monk, though I usually refer to myself as a former monk since I'm married and monks aren't permitted to marry. I live in Los Angeles, which people tell me is one of the world capitals of materialism, facade, fantasy, and overall dodginess. But why live in a place that's already enlightened? Now, in the world and in this book, I share my takeaways from the life I've lived and what I've learned. This book is completely non-sectarian. It's not some sneaky conversion strategy, I swear. I can also promise that if you engage with and practice the material I present, you will find real meaning, passion, and purpose in your life. Never before have so many people been so dissatisfied or so preoccupied with chasing happiness. Our culture and media feed us images and concepts about who and what we should be while holding up models of accomplishment and success, fame, money, glamour, sex. In the end, none of these things can satisfy us. We'll simply seek more and more, a circuit that leads to frustration, disillusion, dissatisfaction, unhappiness, and exhaustion. I like to draw a contrast between the monk mindset and what is often referred to as the monkey mind. Our minds can either elevate us or pull us down. Today, we all struggle with overthinking, procrastination, and anxiety as a result of indulging the monkey mind. The monkey mind switches aimlessly from thought to thought, challenge to challenge, without really solving anything. But we can elevate to the monk mindset by digging down to the root of what we want and creating actionable steps for growth. The monk mindset lifts us out of confusion and distraction and helps us find clarity, meaning, and direction. The monkey mind is overwhelmed by multiple branches. The monk mind focused on the root of the issue. The monkey mind coasts in the passenger seat. The monk mind lives intentionally and consciously. The monkey mind complains, compares, and criticizes. The monk mind is compassionate, caring, collaborative. The monkey mind overthinks and procrastinates. The monk mind analyzes and articulates. The monkey mind is distracted by small things. The monk mind is disciplined. The monkey mind is focused on short-term gratification. The monk mind is focused on long-term gain. The monkey mind is demanding and entitled. The monk mind, enthusiastic, determined, 
patient. The monkey mind changes on a whim. The monk mind commits to a mission, vision, or goal. The monkey mind amplifies negatives and fears. The monk mind works on breaking down negatives and fears. The monkey mind is self-centered and obsessed. The monk mind focuses on self-care for service. The monkey mind likes to think it can multitask. The monk mind focuses on single-tasking. The monkey mind is controlled by anger, worry, and fear. The monk mind controls and engages energy wisely. The monkey mind does whatever feels good. The monk mind seeks self-control and mastery. The monkey mind looks for pleasure. The monk mind looks for meaning. The monkey mind looks for temporary fixes. The monk mind looks for genuine solutions. Thinking like a monk posits another way of viewing and approaching life, a way of rebellion, detachment, rediscovery, purpose, focus, discipline, and service. The goal of monk thinking is a life free of ego, envy, lust, anxiety, anger, bitterness, baggage. To my mind, adopting the monk mindset isn't just possible, it's necessary. We have no other choice. We need to find calm, stillness, and peace. I vividly remember my first day of monk school. I had just shaved my head, but I wasn't wearing robes yet, and I still looked like I was from London. I noticed a child monk. He can't have been more than 10 years old, teaching a group of five-year-olds. He had a great aura about him, the poise and confidence of an adult. What are you doing, I asked. We just taught their first class ever, he said. Then asked me, what did you learn in your first day of school? I started to learn the alphabet and numbers. What did they learn? The first thing we teach them is how to breathe. Why, I asked. Because the only thing that stays with you from the moment you're born until the moment you die is your breath. All your friends, your family, the country you live in, all of that can change. The one thing that stays with you is your breath. This 10-year-old monk added, when you get stressed, what changes? Your breath. When you get angry, what changes? Your breath. We experience every emotion with the change of the breath. When you learn to navigate and manage your breath, you can navigate any situation in life. Already, I was being taught the most important lesson, to focus on the root of things, not the leaf of the tree or symptoms of the problem. And I was learning, through direct observation, that anybody can be a monk, even if they're only five or ten years old. When we're born, the first thing we must do is breathe. But just as life gets more complicated for that newborn baby, sitting still and breathing can be very challenging. What I hope to do in this book is to show you the monk way. We go to the root of things, go deep into self-examination. It is only through this curiosity, thought, effort, and revelation that we find our way to peace, calm, and purpose. Using the wisdom I was given by my teachers in the ashram, 
I hope to guide you there. Throughout this audiobook, I will walk you through three stages of adapting to the monk mindset. First, we will let go, stripping ourselves from the external influences, internal obstacles, and fears that hold us back. You can think of this as a cleansing that will make space for growth. Second, we will grow. I will help you reshape your life so that you can make decisions with intention, purpose, and confidence. Finally, we will give, looking to the world beyond ourselves, expanding and sharing our sense of gratitude and deepening our relationships. We will share our gifts and love with others and discover the true joy and surprising benefits of service. Along the way, I will introduce you to three very different types of meditation that I recommend including in your practice, breathwork, visualization, and sound. All three have benefits, but the simplest way to differentiate them is to know that you do breathwork for the physical benefits, to find stillness and balance, to calm yourself. Visualization for the psychological benefits, to heal the past and prepare for the future, and chanting for the psychic benefits, to connect with your deepest self and the universe for real purification. You don't have to meditate to benefit from this audiobook, but if you do, the tools I give you will refine your practice. I would go so far as to say that this entire book is a meditation, a reflection on our beliefs and values and intentions, how we see ourselves, how we make decisions, how to train our minds, and our ways of choosing and interacting with people. Achieving such deep self-awareness is the purpose and reward of meditation. How would a monk think about this? That may not be a question you ask yourself right now. Probably isn't close at all. But it will be by the end of this audiobook. Thank you so much for listening to the introduction of my first ever book, Think Like a Monk. Head over to thinklikeamonkbook.com if you'd like to grab a hardback, Kindle, or the Audible version of the book that's available right now. And thank you so much for being a part of the On Purpose community. If you haven't left a review for the book or the podcast, please go ahead and do it. It means the world to me. Thank you so much. Thank you.